0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the CPR Health Podcast. I'm Sagar. And I'm Zach. And today we're going to take a moment and we want to talk about COVID vaccinations because it's a big deal and it's in the news and it's been in both of our arms. So it seems like an appropriate time to discuss it. So first, let's just refresh what these COVID vaccinations are. There's a few different types. Zach, take us through it.
1: So right now, currently being used in America, there is the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. They are both mRNA vaccines. So if you want to refresh the actual specifics of that, you can go back and listen to our other podcast. Uh, But just a very quick summary, these vaccines are Portions of RNA that code for the spike protein that you hear about in the coronavirus all the time covered in a casing, a protein and lipid layer that get put into your cells that your cells then use that RNA to make that spike protein so that they can recognize it and eventually mount an immune response against it. So that's what we're working with now. And just uh, be really picky,
0: it's actually mRNA?
1: Yes, it's a specific type of RNA. There, there are multiple types of RNA. This one is an mRNA. That's correct. Hence the name Moderna. Um, Moderna has been working with mRNA for quite some time. Uh, Pfizer is kind of new to the game. Uh, but BioNTech, the company that Pfizer had partnered with, has been doing RNA research, mRNA research. Sorry, Sagar. For some time now. It matters. But these are the first mRNA vaccines that have been put to market.
0: Which is super exciting, quite honestly, because there's just so many advantages with it. You don't have to deal with growing in eggs or having some other animal involved with it. It's just, this is the short little segment that we need to worry about. Let's put it in your body. Your body will make this stuff called spike protein. Then your own body will make the antibody response. And then boom, you're good.
1: Well, and to be clear, it's yet that the advantages are huge uh, when you look at how traditional vaccines have been developed. So if you look at traditional vaccines, every vaccine before I guess July of this past year is when the first DNA vaccine came to market. We can get into that. Uh, we're going to have to get into that to talk about the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But the RNA, the mRNA vaccines are exciting because every other type of vaccine would have to take a protein, a specific protein from a virus or whatever you're trying to vaccinate against, I suppose, and grow that protein, culture it out, put it into something that can be cased into a protective coating, basically, whether that's another viral coating or whatever, inject it into the body so the body can recognize that protein, create an antibody response to the antigen that it sees, the antigen being whatever is recognized by the body's antibody. And then you have your immune response. The problem with that is it takes a very long time to grow out those proteins. And if there's a shift or a change or mutation in the virus or whatever we're trying to vaccinate against, you have to start kind of from scratch to try to recreate that protein again. Whereas in this particular case, if there's a change in any of the way that the virus wants to code or any new proteins, you can just change the RNA sequence a bit, and you've got your, your protein being re- redesigned in the, by the body. So it's actually much easier to take care of mutations, which is really good news because right now we know of two variants to the coronavirus. There's a UK strain and a South African strain both of which contain mutations to the spike protein. We don't think they're necessarily going to be clinically significant, and I think we're pretty confident that the current vaccines are going to cover those mutations. But even if they don't, the good news is now that we kind of have the basis for all of this, it shouldn't be very difficult to recreate a vaccine that does indeed cover them.
0: Yeah, and and if everyone in this country gets vaccinated with rapidity, then we may not even have to worry about it because it won't be able to get a foothold here. So we've gone over the mRNAs. Do you want to talk at all about the adenovirus ones?
1: Yeah. So the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson vaccines are both DNA viruses that are contained in an adenovirus casing. So they took an adenovirus, uh, basically a way to get the DNA that they've put into the virus into us. They've they've made its delivery mechanism so that they inject the DNA into our cells. It's the same concept where that DNA codes for the same protein, but it's just a different mechanism for the way it's created. So the DNA actually has to go into the cell nucleus, whereas the RNA does not. Then it gets transcribed into RNA, and then that gets sent outside where it hits the ribosomes, where we then create the protein that we want to immunize against. Whereas the RNA kind of just skips the step where it goes into the nucleus of the cell. The advantage for the DNA virus is that it doesn't necessarily need to be kept in really cold temperatures. I'm sure you guys have heard that about the Pfizer vaccine needs to be kept at very, very cold temperatures, the Moderna vaccine less cold, but still pretty cold, where the DNA viruses tend to survive a little bit longer at room temperature. Um, the
0: It makes it great news for going into places that don't have refrigeration, mm-hmm. developing countries and so forth.
1: Yeah, they will definitely be very, very helpful uh, in the long run. I think that the disadvantage, I think, is, is is simply that you're just adding an additional step in. I'm not sure it's going to amount to anything from an efficacy standpoint, though. The AstraZeneca study that they cited a 70% reduction in people getting sick with their vaccine and then 100% reduction in illness severity uh, was also reassuring, better than a lot of vaccines that we have. But their study was also a little bit odd. So they're actually redoing it, I think, to make sure that the numbers are actually correct.
0: Yeah, I don't know about them redoing the whole study. I know that they're had one subgroup that accidentally got too little or half as much as they wanted to give for the um first of two injections, and that group seemed to do way better and the theorized problem there is that if you have too big of a dose up front, um, our bodies are pretty good at dealing with adenoviruses because you know that's just they cause common colds and so forth so we create a response to the virus and we never get a chance to create a response to what the virus is supposed to create in our own body. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense too. But anyway, we have actually already had our first of two injections. So of our wives who are physicians and, um, people we know, Zach, how was your experience?
1: Uh, you know, All of the stuff that people talked about, at least for one of two with getting fevers and chills, I didn't have any of that. I actually felt great. I will say my arm hurt more than I probably would have liked. And I think I'm just turning into not as tough of a guy as I used to be (laughs) because I rolled over in the middle of the night the following night. And I was like, "Ah, why does this hurt so bad? Uh, And I had a little bit of redness in the area. But I mean, after two days, the pain was gone. The redness lasted about a week. It was fine. I had no issues. Uh, Nina had pretty much the same thing. I think she had a little bit less soreness because... She's inherently tougher than I am, sadly. But she had the same redness, and then she was also fine. Both of us are doing great right now. Yeah. Um, same thing, except less pain over and, here. and to And to be clear, I had the Moderna vaccine, mm. and, and you had the Pfizer vaccine.
0: Yeah. I had the Pfizer vaccine, and I watched them draw it up and inject, and it felt so fine. I was wondering if I even got it. But <laughs> the next day, there was a little bit of pain, and, and then it went away. And I've been fine since then. But let's talk about what there are reactions, uh, the rates of reactions that are going on for other people out there. And there's different kinds of reactions. And quite honestly, there's going to be some, and it may follow shot number two, may hit as many as 50%, but they're not going to be severe reactions. They're just going to be your immune system waking up. It's what people are calling side effects, but really it's the immune system doing its job. And it gets felt in all sorts of ways. And those immune responses can come in the forms of uh, fever, muscle aches, joint aches. This is the stuff when you get any infection, when you feel that stuff, it's not really directly the uh, pathogen virus causing it. It's our response, our chemical messengers flying through the body, causing this, these sensations to show up. So take us through some of the rates of what people make be considering uh, the most concerning of these symptoms.
1: Anaphylaxis is like the allergic reaction that you hear about when people get bee stings and they have to get themselves the EpiPen and their lips start swelling and they get lightheaded and want to vomit and they get the rash. So that that's anaphylaxis, and that can be life-threatening uh, unless it's treated quickly. So that's obviously a big one. I know a, sub, a few people have gotten that with, I think, more with the Pfizer vaccine. You heard most of the reports that people were getting anaphylactic reactions with it. I, it doesn't sound like it's at any alarming rate there are 21 reported cases of anaphylaxis with the Pfizer vaccine out of 1.9 million people who've gotten it. That's not very many. Yeah, We know that that happens with certain medications, peanuts, with certain vaccines. It's expected to have side of, you know, it's normal to have adverse effects from any drug or vaccine. Those are pretty easily treated because I know that when I got it, and Sagar, I'm sure this is the case for you too, they made us Sit around and wait for 15 to 20 minutes after we got the vaccine to make sure we didn't have any reactions. I, I did not have any. Uh, and I think most of the people who've gotten this have been successfully treated. And that's the case for most cases of anaphylaxis that if you get epinephrine and a proper medication allotment to those people, they do just fine. So, this, and that's, and again, you'll see that with any vaccine. That's not new. Any vaccine will have cases of anaphylaxis. People just get allerg- allergic reactions to certain things. The other thing is Bell's palsy. There were a, less than 10 people who got Bell's palsy in both Moderna and Pfizer trial studies. So when this was initially coming out, we knew about this before it came to market.
0: I'll just take a step back and just describe what Bell's palsy is.
1: Sure. Bell's palsy is when you get irritation or inflammation of your, your cranial nerves that control your face. So you'll have people who get facial droop. It can mimic a stroke. Uh, but oftentimes it's caused by viruses or other times we don't necessarily know what causes it. Uh, But any inflammatory response, I suppose, could cause Bell's palsy. So it's not inconceivable that a vaccine response could cause Bell's palsy. But if you look at the numbers with the people who've gotten Bell's palsy from the vaccines, it's not at any increased rate above the incidence in populations that have no vaccines. It's, It's a very the numbers are exactly the same as you'd expect them to be across populations. And I, and I ran the numbers myself. Uh, so when I, I heard of these results, I kind of looked it up. I think I was supposed to get the vaccine in like three days. So I was like, Uh-oh. uh oh. And I, and I looked up the incidence of Bell's palsy and then I looked at the number of people who got it in the study and how many people were actually studied. And the reports on that are absolutely correct. It was not a concerning number to me.
0: And just so people know, for the vast majority of people that get Bell's palsy from whatever reason, uh, it goes away.
1: Yes. Sorry, do you want to go over some of the issues with what the whole, we talked about all these, all these methods of trying to limit virus exposure and spread, so what, what does the vaccine mean now that it's come out uh, for all that?
0: Absolutely nothing, because we have not studied contagiousness in relation to this vaccine, so if you get vaccinated, or hopefully when you get vaccinated, we've still got to keep on wearing masks around each other uh, until it is studied whether or not we become less contagious or until everyone that's at risk has become vaccinated. And these are the methods that have been shown again and again to really reduce our contagiousness, wearing those masks, keeping physically distant from each other. That's what we've been doing, all this, all these sacrifices, all the school closures, all the restaurant closures, all the economic impacts, all of this has been to flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm healthcare systems causing tons of people to die when they don't have to, all so we can get to this point where the vaccine is out and available with more on the way. And yet, oddly, uh, numbers show that still 15% of people just flat out refuse to get it and another 35% are rather hesitant about it. And if we're going to get to herd immunity, if we're going to get to the point where so many people are vaccinated that some people don't have to be, then we have to hit 85% of the population. That's a lot of people. And I get the I get the hesitancy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a newly developed technology and some people Uh, think that has not actually been adequately tested. We have this emergency approval from the FDA to use it. And if you're not looking at the numbers, if you're not analyzing, it can seem like this thing is just rushed and who knows what's going to happen. And I don't want to be a guinea pig, is the refrain often heard. But this has been studied and the numbers are pretty good. Can you explain the difference between what has happened with developing this vaccine and how it got so quickly done.
1: So yeah, we kind of mentioned that briefly in our other podcast about this as well. But within a few days of having the entire genome of the virus, Moderna was able to sequence out that DNA, identify the area that was coding for the spike protein and create that mRNA strip to use to code for the spike protein so you can inject it into cells and have the body make it. So all they really had to do with them was make the casing to make it stable and the delivery method, I guess, safe and effective. So once they did that, it was it took them less than a week to do that part of it because they've been doing this for a while and they were able to manufacture it relatively quickly. And they they started the testing, you know, they, they had this in January. When did the test start? Was it March they started vaccinating people? Sounds about right. And here's the interesting thing because, I mean,
0: A lot of delay in vaccinations and clinical trials is getting patients. But one thing you don't have to worry about during a pandemic is getting enough patients.
1: Right. So they got forty thousand people for each study, and we're able to track them. I mean, phase two trial started in May. I just looked it up. Phase two trial started in May. So they've been watching these people for seven months now. Yeah,
0: and mostly if you're going to have yeah, if you're going to have an adverse effect, it's going to happen within those first six weeks. And now it's been months.
1: Yeah. And, and these vaccines, they don't alter your DNA. I think that some people are under the impression that because they're RNA viruses, they're going to go into your cells and mess with things and make your cells start doing different things than they're used to doing. That's not, how, that's not how our mRNA vaccines work, or even the DNA vaccines, for that matter. That's not how they work.
0: Yeah. And the, the mRNA ones can't even get
1: into the nucleus. They can't even
0: get anywhere near
1: where the DNA is. Right. So that's a good segue to talk about what what myths have you been hearing about these vaccines that have kind of been adding to the fear or adding to the suspicion that people have about them?
0: Well, there's definitely the ones about the, quote, side effects of the vaccines, which I think we've addressed somewhat, mm-hmm. and how they're really just our immune system revving up. And even though they're coming, I mean, the second shot that we get, we might feel kind of miserable for a day or two. It's yep. still... In comparison to the risk of the virus itself, it's still a no-brainer for me.
1: And we'll update you guys again once we get the second dose. We'll wait a couple weeks, see how we feel, and we'll get back on here and tell you how we did with them. Yeah. And then
0: um, I've had some people who have already had COVID ask me if they should still get the vaccine since, you know, they already had it. And yeah, I think people should still get the vaccine because the response you're getting from the vaccine is still... 10 to 20 fold more than through the actual infection.
1: Yeah. And we think we think that your immunity from getting the virus may last nine months to a year. The theory, and again, we obviously can't know this yet because it hasn't been out long enough, but that the vaccine should last years. So again, theoretically, it would be certainly advantageous to get the vaccine regardless of whether or not you've had COVID.
0: Yeah, but if you have had COVID, you're probably going to need to wait about three months. Yes. And then we've talked about uh, people not wearing to wear masks after they get the vaccine, but you still have to until we've studied that, until people have studied that more. Yes, And then some people are thinking that they might die from one of the um, immune effects of these vaccine and that the risk of that is greater than the risk of the virus itself which does not make any sense
1: no that's just for, it's just not true i mean there's just no getting around that and and i think you've still got this group of people who believes that covid's just not that serious and i don't know how to make them understand that it is they believe that the over three hundred thousand deaths that we have now—that a lot of those aren't COVID deaths—that we're just randomly testing people after they die to see if they have COVID, to see if that you know if they died in a car crash, we test them for COVID, and if they're positive for COVID, we say, "Oh, COVID caused the death." I've not seen any of that. I mean, I guess I can't speak for every healthcare system in the country uh, to say what they've been doing. I, I will tell you that I've not seen any of thing, anything that looks suspicious. I've had patients come into the ER who've died of things that are not related to COVID. We don't test them to see if they've died from COVID when it's obvious that they died from something else. Uh, Sagar, again, maybe you have a different experience. You work in a different healthcare system than I do, but that's not something that I've been exposed to.
0: Yeah, there's no real point to doing right. that. And there's not really enough resources
1: or time to be doing that. Well, the argument that I've heard from people is that the healthcare systems are being reimbursed more money if they can prove that it was a COVID death. And I, I think there may have been some truth to that initially when they said that we're going to re- Medicare and some insurance companies were reimbursing more for COVID. Um, I, again, I just can't say that I've seen that. I, I don't. I don't know how else to say that, but I, I just have not seen any of that.
0: No, that's not happening.
1: So, the other thing that I've heard about this vaccine, another myth that I've heard is that it's not. It's not effective as a vaccine compared to other vaccines. Oh, we have some numbers for this. Yeah, we just did some research on this to, to kind of make people feel better, I guess. Uh, Sagi, do you want to go through some of those?
0: Yeah, and it's just important to realize this is a problem of vaccinations. It may be the biggest problem with vaccinations, is that if it's a really good vaccination, it no longer seems like a problem. For example, polio. Yeah. Vaccines wiped out polio. 99 to 100% effective, Right. We haven't seen polio in a long time. Smallpox, 95% effective. We haven't seen smallpox in a long time. So nobody remembers in their life, people they know, um, for the most part, the paralysis of polio, the scarring of smallpox, the deaths that it's caused. Um, MMR is another thing. Measles, one rubella. It is, after you get your two doses, I think you're up around 95% immune at that point. And so measles was essentially done with until a lot of people stopped getting the vaccines. And then in those areas, there have been multitudes of outbreaks. Um, and then people can see what devastation it can bring. And slowly these vaccination rates go up again. But tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, that's about 80 to 90%. Uh, the pneumonia vaccines around 89%. Shingles, anywhere from 90 to 97. Haemophilus influenza, that's a big one. That's about 95% effective. That was responsible for a lot of cases of meningitis long ago. And now we don't see that. There are a lot of people alive and way better health. That wouldn't have been otherwise because of the success of vaccinations. But this new vaccination, the mRNA ones at least, are right up there. Zach, what are those numbers?
1: So the Pfizer and Moderna are very similar, both 90 to 95% effective in preventing illness. By the way, they did the study. And some estimates are saying 100% effective at preventing severe disease. And that's also true of AstraZeneca was, again, about 70 to 75 with their initial report. I think they're trying to get firmer numbers on that. But again, still 100% effective in preventing severe disease. So keeping you off a ventilator so that even if you get the illness, it's much more like a common cold. And less like something that can kill you. Yeah. So even if you get the virus, you don't get the illness, and that's true of other viruses as well. The rotavirus is what seventy-eight percent effective at preventing rotavirus. Uh, ninety-eight. Yeah, for preventing severe cases, it's ninety-eight percent effective. Right. Se- severe cases is a little bit different than preventing the illness, but just be and then you could say the same thing about flu. The seasonal flu vaccine anywhere between forty to sixty percent effective at preventing flu, but we think much more effective at preventing severe flu and remember flu can still be a very serious disease. So even if you still get this vaccine, you still get coronavirus. The hope is that you didn't get it as severely as you would have otherwise.
0: Now let's put in a plug that, um, get the flu vaccine this season as well. Please do you, you can have both influenza and COVID simultaneously.
1: Yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad week. No, you're going to have... Or, or two. You're not going to feel good. Let's see. Other other myths. Oh, this is a fun one. Uh, I've, I've heard this from a few people. Uh, that the COVID vaccine was developed as a population control technique to put what? microchips into people so that they can track them. Population control? So, I know where this came from. You often hear Bill Gates drawn into this conspiracy theory, like he has some vested interest in knowing what each individual American is doing at any given time. Like our smartphones don't do that anyway. But more specifically, this particular myth came from a vaccine tracking system that Bill Gates is helping to develop with other companies. That has nothing to do with this particular vaccine. It has to do with vaccines given in developing countries And here we have decent vaccine tracking records where we're good at knowing, hey, you got, you know, your childhood vaccines, which is great because we don't need to be giving people multiple doses of vaccines if they don't need them. In other countries, that's not the case. So they have basically these like little invisible ink blots for each individual vaccine that you get so that you can, I think there's like some smartphone technology where you can see what vaccine they've gotten so that you're not doubling up on people's vaccines in developing countries. Genius idea. Somehow that got twisted into, oh, now we're tracking people in America with microchips. I don't know how that happened, but now we're that's the theory. So no, that, that is not true. That is based on a conspiracy theory on semi-close information from something else.
0: If it was true, it would be concerning. <laughs> but uh, luckily it's not true. And I think when it comes to vaccinations, including, but not just this one, it ends up turning into not really a scientific debate because I think anyone who is really familiar with the science isn't part of the debate. They've already settled on, yeah, vaccinations are safe and effective, but there's things that have been built into healthcare and just how it's been developed and how we've evolved as healthcare systems throughout generations That has bred distrust and opacity. And that's what people are reacting to when they want to say hell no to getting a vaccine. And the more we're able to deal with that, uh, the more successful we'll be, I think. And additionally, and I don't know how to do this, but additionally, if we can somehow deal with people being in their own information bubbles when it comes to things like social media. Uh, that would be very helpful
1: too. Yeah, that would be. Um, it's probably getting a little bit out of the scope of what we aimed at here, but yes, yeah. definitely true. Spe- tangent. Speaking of, yeah, it is, but there's, all, I mean, it's, I guess it's a semi-tangent because a lot of these myths are based on misinformation propagated on social media. So they bear being discussed. There's one more myth we should probably talk about, and that's that these vaccines contain fetal tissue. In 1972 and 1985, there were cell lines that were developed from fetal tissue. So these cell lines that were obtained do not require ongoing abortions to obtain them. These cell lines are produced now at this point. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccine do not use fetal cells to create the vaccine. There are vaccines that are coming to market that do require the use of fetal cells in order to create the vaccine itself, but they don't contain fetal tissue in the actual vaccine. Moderna and Pfizer used the fetal cell lines to test proof of concept, so they would see what kind of response they got from the fetal cell lines with the vaccine administered to them. I know this is a highly sensitive subject and one about which there's a lot of debate, so I think it's important that the truth about what is actually in these vaccines, about how they're being developed, is known, and the myth that there is fetal tissue in the vaccine itself is simply not true. So just to recap what we've talked about, the vaccine is
0: safe, it's effective. I think it's a really good idea that if you have access to it and you're in one of the groups that has been selected as being appropriate for the being up first for the vaccine, that you jump on that. And we're about to get our second vaccinations mean a matter of
1: days. We'll keep you updated. Yeah, we definitely will. If you guys have anything that you want to hear about or questions about this, we try to stay pretty up to date with the literature, with the knowledge. We see it quite often. So if you have questions or things you want to hear about, just contact us. um, Facebook, Instagram, our contact emails on our website. Just uh, leave us a question or a comment about this and we'll address it in our next podcast. Yeah, The
0: website, by the way, is CPRHealthClinic.com. Until next time, I'm Sagar. And I'm Zach. We will see you guys next time. And remember, the way you live can save your life.